0: You're listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. And welcome to this, our webinar on adolescent refugee challenges under COVID-19. I hope you're all keeping safe during these uncertain times. Today, we're expecting over 200 people from 38 countries to join us. So uh, we're really excited about having this truly global audience. So thank you for being with us. My name is Nicola Jones. I'm the director of the Gender and Adolescence Global Evidence Gauge program at ODI. So as you all know, the COVID-19 pandemic is really posing unprecedented challenges across the world and exacerbating the precarious situation of refugee communities in particular whose numbers have doubled over the last decade, such that it's estimated that 1% of the world's population is now affected by displacement. So today our aim is to spotlight adolescent refugee voices from the Palestinian Rohingya and Syrian refugee crises and to identify key priorities for policy and programming, as well as together to put forward recommendations to address critical education and protection gaps among others for adolescents during the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond? So to answer these questions, we have a really wonderful panel lined up today. Um, We will begin uh, with my colleague, Sally Youssef, uh, who's a qualitative research coordinator with Gage Lebanon, who's been carrying out participatory research with Palestinian and Syrian refugee adolescent girls and boys in camps and host communities in Lebanon in person prior to the crisis uh, and virtually um, since the onset of the pandemic. Uh, We will then have um, uh, Dr. Teresa Beltramo, who's a senior economist and a head of analytics research and knowledge management at UNHCR And Teresa, among others, leads joint work with the World Bank, uh, including operationalizing the UNHCR World Bank Joint Data Center. So welcome. Uh, We also have joining us today, Manuel Rodriguez, who's the Chief of Social Protection and Policy with UNICEF Jordan. And Manuel will be sharing experiences of UNICEF's innovative work to reach the most vulnerable uh, young people in camps, informal settlements, and host communities. So thanks for joining, Manuel. And then, finally, we will have uh, my colleague, Veronique Baboulet, uh, who's a senior research fellow with the Humanitarian Policy Group at ODI. And she's been leading um, a range of work looking at inclusive programming in context of displacement. So thanks, Veronique, for joining us. So I would like to remind you um, to either use the chat box or to please tweet us your comments and questions to at ODI um, underscore dev, and we're going to begin today's discussion by hearing from Sally. Um, but before Sally starts, I just want to very briefly give you a snapshot of the research that Gage has been doing in humanitarian contexts related to COVID-19. So if I can get the slides to move down. Um, they seem to be challenged. Um, So I'll move right along. Um, But uh, just to highlight that we have as part of Gage um, research in uh, six different countries with a um, population of um, 5,000 refugee and IDP young people involved in the research out of a total sample of of 20,000. And during the pandemic, Um, We have been carrying out uh, virtual research, both phone surveys and uh, virtual qualitative interviews with young people and their caregivers uh, in Lebanon, in Jordan, in the Gaza Strip, um, and in Bangladesh um, with young people in the Rohingya camps and surrounding host communities. Um, And what I would like to highlight is that the research that we are doing is really um, bringing um, into the spotlight the ways in which young people's gendered experiences um, and the role of powerful discriminatory norms are being exacerbated under the the COVID-19 situation. So challenges that young girls face in terms of mobility, in terms of sexual harassment on the way to school, intimate partner violence for those who are married, all of those we're hearing from young people uh, are being compounded um, during the the lockdowns um, and the um, mobility restrictions um, that many people are, are facing in response to the pandemic. I also before we get started would really just like to underscore the close linkages that we have with uh, UNICEF and UNICEF Jordan in particular so some of the the research that we're doing at the moment is building on a, a longitudinal evaluation partnership Um, that Manuel will will touch on, um, which is looking at a large national program to work with uh, refugees and um, vulnerable young people in in host communities. So we're delighted to have um, that linkage, but also we are partnering with UNHCR for the work that we're doing um, with the the Cox's Bazaar panel study with Rohingya refugees in in camps and host communities uh, together with Yale University. And we have just released uh, for World Refugee Re- World Refugee Day, sorry, uh, the third of three policy briefs looking at the experiences of adolescent Rohingya refugees um, and highlighting the critical age and gender-based challenges that young people have been facing. Um, so please do, do check those out. So now I would like to hand over to Sally, who's going to share with us findings from virtual research with refugees about some of the psychosocial and educational challenges that refugee youth are facing in Lebanon. So over to you, thanks, Sally. Sally you're on mute.
2: Sorry, (laughs) thank you, Nicola, and hello everyone. Uh, before moving into the impact of the pandemic on uh, adolescent refugees it's important to highlight that in Lebanon uh, the uh, lockdown has coincided with uh, with a socio-economic crisis that was actually uh, accelerated by the lockdown which resulted in a depreciation in the local currency and uh, a hyperinflation in prices including food and uh, medicine Uh, this has uh, immensely affected the refugee communities who have been already suffering from uh, poverty and lack of services. So moving to the uh, psychosocial, uh, uh, how the psychosocial well-being of uh, adolescents has been affected, uh, I will be going uh, through the main areas that require attention and action throughout. Refugee adolescents are currently experiencing high levels of anxiety and depression. Uh, However, boys and girls have mentioned different stressors. So, for girls, uh, economic hardship was the major stressor uh, with the increasing levels of food insecurity and inability to get basic needs like sanitary pads or uh, diapers for children. Uh, Also, the girls have... um, reported increasing uh, intra-family and uh, marital problems, which were also related to stresses over the economic hardships. However, the uh, girls did not actually report increasing gender-based violence, which could be related uh, also to the limited uh, privacy at home. Nonetheless, uh, the young Syrian mothers uh, have told us that they are becoming uh, more violent with their children. Uh, due to the pressures on them. So while all the girls have reported being more engaged in domestic work, it was more dramatic to the Syrian girls who became the main breadwinners in their families as men lost their jobs during the lockdown. And they are still going to the fields and working there. Uh, In addition to this, they are solely bearing the additional uh, domestic and childcare responsibility as everyone is at home uh, during the lockdown. distance learning was also uh, one of the major stressors mentioned by the in-school adolescent uh, uh, girls uh, especially with the challenges to it which will be discussed later in addition also to the increased restrictions on their mobilities. And finally, the fears around the uncertainty of their future in the country, given the wider social, political and economic uh, crisis and the uh, weakening social cohesion in the country, which is leaving actually both girls and boys um, in fears of uh, around their futures and survival in the country. The following quotes from um, uh, some of our par- uh, two of our participants uh, reflect how these uh, factors are impacting the psychosocial well-being of the girls. So a married Syrian girl said, I am always nervous, shouting at the children. They used to play outside, but now they are with me all the time while I am working and baking. I'm not able to handle all of this. And sometimes when I get nervous, I lash out at my children, hitting them to relieve my anger. Another Palestinian girl said, uh, I cannot understand the lessons by myself and the stress from this is too much for me, especially with the situation of my family. All this is making me feel I am choking from inside and paralyzed. I do not see anyone outside and stay at home all the time. I feel I am trapped. For the boys, um, the stress over the economic hardships was actually aggravated for the boys, especially for the Syrian boys who are uh, the main breadwinners in their families. Uh, with the lockdown, they became, uh, became out of work without any, uh, alternative income or, um, savings. The boys have also expressed, um, extreme uh, worries about providing for their families and have told us that they are resorting to borrowing in order to buy food and pay rent. Uh, And actually the majority of the Syrian boys uh, had to move their houses during the lockdown due to their inability to uh, to pay the rent. Um, regarding the intra-family uh, problems, the boys were less likely to discuss these issues. However, the Syrian boys have told us that they are becoming more confined to their homes uh, due to their in- to increasing fears of being targeted by the Lebanese authorities and the uh, co- Lebanese community, given the increasing uh, discrimination against uh, refugees uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, as they are being viewed as a, f- uh, as a threat. Um, So uh, the following quotes show how the boys are impacted, Uh, a Syrian boy has said, It is difficult more than I can describe to you. I am the main breadwinner in my family, and I am not working, and we do not have money. I borrow money when I can to get food for my family, and on top of everything, we were evicted from our house. We moved to a small house with two rooms only, and we are 11 members in my family. Another boy said, we cannot go out or visit our relatives and friends because our neighbors are scared that we have corona. When they see us outside, they call the, poli- uh, the police, they are annoying us a lot. We stay at home and we close the windows so that we would not, uh, they would not see us. Um, moving to the challenges to distance learning, Uh, the major challenge that uh, the refugee adolescents uh, have mentioned was the limited access to internet and electricity. In fact, Lebanon suffers from uh, power shortages and poor internet connectivity, which was the main challenge to uh, long distance, uh, to distance education. Uh, in addition to this, the uh, in school, uh, refugee adolescents have told us that uh, they were not able to pay the internet fees and the private electricity bills uh, in order for them to attend classes. A Palestinian girl has explained, I stopped studying because we don't have internet, we don't have money to pay for it. Even when we had internet, I couldn't really study. The connectivity is is very bad and the electricity always cuts, which makes it impossible to attend the classes. Adding to these challenges, of course, the limited access to digital devices was another uh, another challenge. Uh, Even when the uh, adolescents had access uh, access or partial access, actually, to limited devices, uh, they also faced difficulties uh, using the digital technology or applications that their schools adopted for online education. Um, A Palestinian girl explains, uh, I do not have a mobile phone and I can barely use my mom's and the internet is so bad in the camp so I cannot always attend my classes. Adding to these challenges, uh, the uh, in-school refugee adolescents were finding extreme difficulties in adapting to the new online teaching methods. And they cited also lack of support from their teachers. Uh, which was uh, specifically challenging with the courses given in foreign languages. So in Lebanon, uh, the curriculum is given either in English or in French, while for example that of Syria is in Arabic. And for students from Syria, it was already challenging for them uh, prior to the uh, 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 before. And with the online education, it became even more challenging uh, given the lack of support they are receiving. Uh, One of the Palestinian girls explained this education method has caused us severe stress and depression. We are given more lessons and homework than we usually get at school without explaining them to us, and we are left to study by ourselves with little support from our teachers. I am not able to understand my lessons. And finally, I will leave you uh, with uh, some of the... uh Uh, photo stories by our participants, uh, which also reflect uh, some of the major challenges facing the refugee adolescents in Lebanon. Thank you. Thanks
1: so much, Sally. Some very sobering findings, um, I think, really highlighting the different gender challenges that adolescent girls and boys are facing, um, both within the household, but then also some of the, the key issues you flagged related to social cohesion. So I'm, I'm sure when we go to the question and answer, there'll be lots of questions related to that. Um, now I'd like to turn to you, thanks, Teresa, um, to reflect on why strengthening disaggregated data is really key to be advancing uh, the humanitarian sector's work and addressing some of these challenges that Sally has highlighted. So thanks, over to you.
3: Thanks, Nicola, and, and thanks to ODI for the invitation. It's, it's my pleasure to be with all of you today. Uh, indeed, I'll talk about the importance of comparable socioeconomic data. Uh, for refugees and hosts in uh, the wake of the COVID nineteen pandemic, and I'll t- particularly try to uh, articulate the the importance for youth. So let me start off with uh, outlining, you know, what we know at UNHCR, uh, your pre COVID, and you know what we expect, and what we've seen so far from our uh, existing work post COVID. So you know, for starters. Some 70% of refugees live in countries which have restricted uh, right to work uh, with the majority excluded from participating in the formal economy and its related protection. And as such, it's not surprising that, um, you know, the majority of working refugees are employed in the informal sector, um, particularly women and youth have um, a higher level of formality. Uh, and then thus, you know, you know, given the secondary shock of COVID uh, being the economic shock, the informal sector is likely to be, the, is the first to be cut. So, you know, without income replacement, savings or other social protections, this economic shock will felt by what we call persons of concern at UNHCR, which includes refugees will be acute. In, secondly, vulnerability will be com- uh, compounded, increasing the need for assistance. We uh, have seen, and, and uh, it's our belief this will be expanded that, you know, uh, the wake of the pandemic will exasperate existing vulnerabilities, inequalities, and gaps in social protection. Um, it will also increase dependence on, on humanitarian assistance and, and other assistance. Pre-COVID, comparative, where we have comparative socioeconomic studies in Kenya and in Uganda, we see that refugees already face higher rates of poverty than nationalists. So understanding how refugees fare post uh, COVID pandemic compared to nationals is really essential for both uh, the humanitarian and development response. We also uh, believe, have seen and, and uh, expect COVID will uh, continue to have spillover effects on education. And um, education enrollment and completion rates, particularly for secondary school are generally lower than nationals. Um, and you know, we know that even a short Uh, Shock can impact displaced children's school attendance and completion for a prolonged period. Um, And then of course, this increases youth exposure to protection risks, potential for increased dropout rates, uh, especially among girls and limits access to nutrition from school feeding programs. Um, Thank you. So let me uh, zoom in on a a work piece of work that we're, uh, that UNHCR is, is a part of. So we have a well-established partnership with the World Bank, uh, and um, particularly, we have uh, just launched our, our joint data center together. Um, and you know, Kenya is an exemplar exemplary case. Um, here, HR uh, we're very pleased to be a part of the um, the work that the World Bank is leading together with the Kenyan National Bureau of Statistics, in the um, together with the implementing partners here, uh, in the um, socioeconomic impact of COVID-19 phone surveys. Um, we've been able to include a, a refugee sample, as you can see here, into the um, suite of surveys that the, the World Bank and Kenya National Bureau of Statistics are leading on. Um, this will allow us to have comparable socioeconomic data. Um, I'll show you the website next but uh, knowledge and behavioral changes, employment and income, food security, education and health services, uh, subjective well-being, coping strategies, and then uh, using the SWIFT methodology we measure uh, a rapid poverty assessment. So um, I'm just going to give you a couple outputs from our, uh, you know, from the data collection that's ongoing. We, we have um, the data is being collected uh, in four refugee sites and one stateless population. So the refugee sites are in uh, urban uh, Nairobi, in um, in uh, camps Dodab and Kakuma, and in settlement Kalebe. Uh We also have a stateless population, the Shona uh, people, who, who um, are outside of, uh, of are outside of Nairobi, in an er- peri-urban areas. So here you can see are uh, uh, the link to our um, you know, to the to the, uh, to the uh, dashboard, which uh, I encourage you to, to look at. And here's just some recent um, outcomes from our first uh, data collection. We will do three rounds of data collection. Um, you know, one we just completed in May, and we'll do a second one in July, and we'll do one in September. And, and this is a repeat panel. Uh, so we interview the same household over time. And um, right, we, we also will, uh, we're committed to getting this data out fast because uh, colleagues, uh, you know, and it's open so people can uh, can a- assess the aggregate data right away and uh, on this dashboard as well as we're uh, very committed to getting out the anonymized data set as fast as possible, uh, you know, within weeks of the release. So um, on, the, on the dashboard, I just want to highlight that uh, you can disaggregate by legal status. So refugees or non-refugees, you can also disaggregate by... Uh, geographic, rur- rural, urban, or all. You can also disaggregate by gender. Um, so this should allow for, for further reflection. Um, here you can see some of our initial outcomes uh, on employment. And you can just focus on that last data point. Uh, but where, where it shows refugees are are far worse off uh, in terms of uh, employment, with urban refugees at the latest trend showing 6% employed versus over 50% for urban nationals. And um, similarly for rural Nationals employed, uh, employment is 58 uh, percent of people are employed versus 11 percent of refugees in rural um, areas are employed. Uh, these are really these outcomes are particularly also um, th- th- this is a very important to understand post COVID, but it's also important to understand on the the backdrop or on the relief of um, you know what uh, the pre existing situation is for for refugees and nationals. We happen to have in Kenya. Um, a series of uh, pre existing work we've done prior to the COVID on measuring uh, comparably the second socioeconomic um, the, uh, status of, of welfare status of refugees and nationals. And so, um, in a recently completed data collection effort in Kakuma, Kenya, uh, again, joint with the bank, HCR, and uh, the Kenyan National Bureau of Statistics, which we completed uh, last December, refugees have a, a statistically significant lower labor force participation rate with only 20% of uh, working age refugees employed versus 72% for nationals. Um, again, in uh, Uganda, uh, recently com- concluded data collection effort uh, in, the, in 2018 by uh, the World Bank and, and the Uganda Bureau of Statistics. Um, HCR has done some analysis and which shows youth unemployment is disproportionately high for refugees. Um, this is again, pre-COVID, but uh, youth, Defined as individuals between 14 to 25, have uh, 14% unemployment for Uganda males and 16% for females, versus 50% for refugee males and 41% for refugee females. This is prior to COVID, and, and I think um, you know we know uh, that you know refugee populations are disproportionately young, uh, youthful. So this already great divide that exists, um, you know, between Refugees and nationals will only be um, further, uh, you know, further, further widened under the, the pandemic. So, <clears throat> let me turn to uh, our last uh, slide here to show you just what our initial uh, phone surveys are showing around food security and education. That refugees fare worse, and you can see initial outcomes for food uh, insecurity and, and education here that. You know, post COVID, 74% of nationals' children are engaged in learning activities uh, for, uh, versus 30% for refugees in Kenya. This is again on the backdrop of very low outcomes for secondary education um, prior to COVID. Again, that same study in Kenya sh- uh, shows that secondary education rates um, are much lower than pre existing for refugees than they are for, for nationals for uh, net um, uh, attendance rates. Uh, 14% of nationals prior to, uh, um, um, I'm sorry, 38% of nationals prior to COVID uh, attended secondary school, while only 14% of refugees. And, you know, as as highlighted before, these interruptions to education, even short, um, can have large effects on educational outcomes, uh, especially in settings with already weak outcomes, um, and could be a particularly large risk for uh, refugee communities globally. And then finally, in terms of food security, uh, you can see that um, particularly in urban areas, we, we see that refugee communities have a much higher rate of uh, food food shortages, some 52% versus 21% in urban, uh, in, in urban areas for nationals in Kenya. So, you know, we hope that um, you know, just by highlighting a piece of work that, that is one of what we hope to be many, uh, together with partners, that um, this can show the importance of uh, generating... Comparable data for refugees and and hosts, ideally with the uh, with governments, national statistics offices, um, and then just as importantly, uh, the value in, in making this data publicly available uh, as a public good for all stakeholders. As you know, the response is is uh, multifaceted, and uh, it's necessary for both um, you know development and humanitarian actors to collect this data, so as to help inform uh, our response. Um, you know using uh, the the most accurate uh, data possible. Thanks very much.
1: Great thank you very much Teresa. Um, some very concerning findings about the stark divides particularly around um, unemployment for youth uh, education and then the the links to uh, nutrition and school feeding. Um, So I'm now going to hand over to Manuel, uh, who's going to reflect on how uh, UNICEF has been twinning some rapid um, evidence along with uh, tailored programming for young people. Thanks, Manuel.
4: Thank you so much, Nicola and colleagues, and it's a great pleasure to be part of this webinar. Maybe to understand and contextualize how COVID is impacting uh, refugees in Jordan, I think it would be interesting to understand some of the characteristics of Syrian refugees here. Overall, the household size of Syrian refugees is around 5.3 members. Something very important is that 78% of Syrian population is considered as highly or severely poor. Keeping in mind also that 20% of the children here in Jordan are multidimensionally poor. Then in terms of coping mechanisms, we have seen that around 75% of the Syrian refugees have uh, gone through uh, this negative coping mechanism. 24% of that population have some kind of disabilities. In terms of income, eh, as you may be aware, one of the challenges is the restrictions that Syrian refugees have in terms of accessing the labor market, because there are just some categories on which they can work. And in terms of income, their income is around 40 to 30% less than the Jordanian. Also, 64% of the population is under that Syria. I'm talking about Syrian refugees. And 5.1% of the children are considered or identified on, as part of uh, child labor or working children. So keeping that in mind, when and this is basically before COVID. These findings are from our multidimensional geographic assessment that we did in February this year. So now, with the onset of COVID, what we are expecting its as possible adverse effects are, first of all, reductions in labor and non-labor income. Specifically, we are talking about job losses, losses in hours and reduced wages. In terms of non-labour income, we are talking about remittance. It's good to highlight that here eight percent of the overall household income uh, comes from remittance. Also, uh, we are we are I mean we are l- seeing an important reduction on consumption, especially uh, on food, and this is due a uh, Uh, to the increase of uh, food commodities. Also, we have seen an increase of -of out-of-pocket spending on health and also uh, the reduction on access to health and education, which, as you know, will will impair the uh, human capital accumulation. So, because of those adverse effects, what we are Expecting as a possible negative impact is, as you may know, increase on child labor, child marriage, psychosocial impact on young population, an increase in the of dropouts and out-of-school children, and challenges in access to both health services and also essential medicines. So, based on that, we carry out during the last two weeks of April, and we released it first week of May, a multi-sectorial rapid needs assessment. This assessment covered Syrian population, also Jordanians and non-Syrian, non-Jordanians. And as part of the key findings, what we saw was that in terms of livelihoods, the... Current loss of access to livelihoods and limited savings uh, will uh, generate uh, greater dependence on humanitarian cash assistance. And also, we are expecting that the number of vulnerable houses will increase. Just to have an idea, 35% of the refugees reported that they will have a secure job once the curfew is lifted. lifted. So, that will give us a sense in terms of the livelihood also the longer term economic impacts uh, of the on the informal uh, labor sector definitely will have a a potential reverse uh, effect over the recent progress that we have achieved in terms of refugees self-reliance and this is particularly important on women, where only 8% of women were working before the crisis, before the COVID emergency, and majority of them during this assessment reported that their uh, area of work was disrupted with the curfew. Also, in terms of protection, uh, we, have, we, we found that Uh, the children's well-being has been negatively uh, impacted by the crisis and resulting curfew with an increase in the signs of distress reported among children in family tensions and in violence against children, especially related to COVID-19. Then in terms of education, uh, in Jordan, while remote learning strategies were put in place, at the onset of the emergency and this uh, remote learning was heavily relying on TV and online learning modalities. The assessment confirms that children in the hardest areas to reach and the most vulnerable communities are not always able to access these opportunities due to a digital gap what i mean by digital gap is lack of connectivity lack of devices or in many cases what we saw was that for example in a household with three four children they just had one mobile phone that was owned by the head of the household and he had to share this mobile phone with the three or four children so There is a gap there, but beyond that, beyond the connectivity, we strongly think that there is a need to provide more or to work more on the quality of the online content. And also training the teacher and support more the parental engagement. I think that Uh, When we talk about online learning, it's not like uploading into a a website the materials that we used to use on face-to-face learning. We need to start working harder on creating content and interactive and attractive content for children. In terms of health, very quickly, uh, uh, what we saw on the survey it was gaps in terms of awareness and some challenges to access health services, especially among female-headed houses and on internal tent settlements. Finally, in terms of food security, regardless that this situation may have changed because here in Jordan, two weeks back, most of the economic sector started to reopen, but we found a reduced access to food for all population groups 32 percent of the respondents did not have enough food to eat uh, one week before the uh, data collection also we found uh, an important increase of price for food commodities regardless all the measures that the government uh, put in place for that so that is the overall context. In one minute, as UNICEF, what we have been doing is providing a comprehensive packages of services composed by cash support for the most vulnerable families. Also, through our MAKANI program, which is a comprehensive package of learning support services, is life skills, and child protection services, we were able to switch into an online approach and using WhatsApp groups. So we were able to keep following the houses during the uh, curfew. And also with our watch section, we have been providing all the uh, hygiene support to these families. So maybe during the section of question and answers, we may clarify any of these uh, aspects. And uh, thanks so much again for the invitation.
1: Fantastic. Thanks, Manuel. Um, We've had a couple of questions come in. So I'm just going to take those really quickly and then we'll head to Veronique. Um, So firstly, a question um, from Elsa uh, Marawi, who's a senior research and policy officer at Girls Not Brides in the UK. And she was asking about findings related to child marriage both in the the Kenyan and the Jordanian context um, have uh, or is the data showing that there's been an increase in child marriage rates and any differences that are emerging between refugees and host communities. So Teresa or Manuel I don't know if you have any um, quick thoughts on that question.
4: If I may well uh, honestly speaking I think that is a bit early, we are expecting that, as I said, the child marriage may increase, but it's too early to start seeing the impact of this uh, because uh, what we think is, we will see uh, the, the, as the the implementation by the households of this negative coping mechanism as the uh, uh, situation the economical situation becomes worse so anyway we are planning to release a multi-dimensional child poverty assessment we will start data collection in a few weeks from now so hopefully we will be able to capture the incidence of child marriage now after covid
1: Great. Thanks, Manuel. Um, and Teresa, I'll just combine it with one more question that we've got in um, from Sapana Bista, who's at the Public Health Institute in the UK, and is asking also about any disaggregated data by disability. So whether mm-hmm. you've got any disability or marriage in the work that you've been doing so far.
3: Thanks very much. Sure. So we don't measure specifically, um, you know, uh, child marriage as a specific need in the COVID uh, response in Kenya, but... Uh, you know, it can be a write-in. So, uh, you know, that's something we can look at. But um, I think, you know, the work that, in the collaboration, uh, the work that Gage is leading and that UNHCR has been collaborating on in uh, Bangladesh uh, together with Yale, there is uh, quite some uh, good data on baseline findings around um, child marriage. So I would refer you to that brief uh, as well. Uh, I mean, obviously we do know that, you know, with... um, Economic uh, downturn and, and you know uh, with the the shock that the the refugee population in particular will be facing, I think we know that you know if this is a common um, you know modality for uh, you know for for uh, risk coping, then I think we could expect it to increase in, in countries where this is a common modality for for risk coping. Um, in terms of disability, we do uh, have disaggregated data for. Um, uh, for disabled in uh, in the existing baseline data that we have on Calabay that is publicly available. And I'll put the um, link in the chat so that uh, colleagues can uh, can broadcast that to you. Thanks very much.
1: Thanks, Teresa. And yes, just to say we have um, uh, married girls and young people with disabilities and all our four samples. So thanks for flagging that, Teresa. And likewise, at the end, I'll, I'll let you know the links. Great, so thank you very much. Uh, I would now like to turn to Véronique who's going to reflect uh, on where we have gotten to in the humanitarian sector more generally in terms of inclusive responses um, and what all of this means uh, in the context of
0: COVID-19. Thanks, Véronique. Thank you very much and thank you to all the speakers for this information. It's been really interesting to see all the analysis that's been done already on the impact of COVID-19. So I've been asked um, very bluntly whether there's optimism in terms of the humanitarian sector um, doing more inclusive responses. And I think, yes, there is some room for optimism um, because we are seeing some progress around um, inclusive programming generally in the humanitarian sector with a particular focus, I would say, on gender, age, and disability. Um, more generally, um, following the World Humanitarian Summit, um, the humanitarian sector. Um, placed inclusion at, you know, was one of the debates at the World Humanitarian Summit was around inclusion, and there were two different charters on inclusions that were put forward as a result of the World Humanitarian Summit and signed by the major global humanitarian actors. Um, we are also uh, seeing inclusion and inclusive uh, responses being one of the key priority in in the humanitarian policy debate, in particular um in terms of um the work that is done through the interagency standing committee and for those who may not know this is if you want the 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 decision making or policy forum for the humanitarian sector more widely and inclusion is one of the key work streams that Um, this um, committee is looking at. We're also seeing more and more organisations adopting policies to support inclusive responses. Uh, For example, UNHCR has an age, gender and diversity policy, and we're also seeing organisations adopting more intersectional approaches to humanitarian response, um, and that's organisations like Islamic Relief Worldwide, for example, or CAFOD, um, have explored ways of doing that to their programming. Um, but there is a but. Um, the humanitarian sector does continue to struggle to ensure inclusive responses, including in displacement contexts, context, including with regards to adolescence. Um, and what do we mean by inclusion here? So what we mean is we, an inclusive response is a response uh, to a humanitarian crisis, um, that which is those most affected by the crisis, um, and a response that is designed based on a nuanced understanding of how diverse people are affected differently by crisis, and also ensuring that their capacities is harnessed in the response. Um, so that's basically having humanitarian responses that are tailored to these different impacts and the needs resulting from this crisis. And unfortunately, as the state of the humanitarian system tells us in 2018, the humanitarian system is still poor at understanding the specific vulnerabilities of particular population groups and often fails to ensure that assistance is relevant to the needs in particular of um, older people and people with disabilities. So why is it that the humanitarian sector continues to struggle, including in displacement, to ensure inclusive responses? Um, So one, um, one of the things that we've observed in um, research that we're currently doing at the humanitarian policy group is that inclusion in the humanitarian sector has often focused on developing quite technical solutions and developing technical guidance. And unfortunately, we're not really seeing the development of these guidancings dramatically translating into a change in practice and uh, delivering more inclusive responses on the ground um for instance a piece of research we did a few years back on older people in displacement in east africa um we found that humanitarian actors on the ground felt completely overwhelmed by the multiplicity of technical guidance they had to apply in emergency contexts, and felt unable to be at the same time gender sensitive do protection mainstreaming take into account persons with disabilities And now we were asking them to also consider the specific needs and capacities of older people. Um, And so what we found in that research is that as a result, older people, for instance, tended to fall through the cracks of emergency responses. The second challenge is that focus on the technical approach um, to ensuring inclusive responses has not really tackled the trade-offs and dilemmas that inclusion presents for those that are responding to emergencies. So what we found is that there is very much a tension um, between uh, reaching more people and reaching the most vulnerable. And that tension is not being resolved, and there is very little support for those um, responding to humanitarian crises with restricted resources to know how best to utilize those limited resources. So it's, inclu- it's really unclear at the moment how inclusion sits strategically in humanitarian decision-making. It is unclear whether um, the ethos of reaching those most marginalized, those most affected, affected, does mean that it is okay to reach less people in crisis. It is very unclear how to balance these two approaches. A third um, issue that that we've seen um, is that the understand how the humanitarian sector understands vulnerability has often been done through a very categorical, non dynamic, one dimensional way, and has re- resulted, if you want, in this long list of groups that are considered vulnerable in crisis: women, girls, people with disability, older people, etc. And this has not really led to more inclusive humanitarian action. And then fourth, um, the f- one of the struggle that um, prevents the humanitarian sector to be more inclusive has been around the effective participation of people affected by crisis, accountability to those people, um, and doing more people-centered responses. Um, and so, um, and, and often, that is also a failure of localizing humanitarian action, where you work with those organizations that are closest to those affected by crisis. Um in terms of, of COVID nineteen, for me there are really two points um, that um is in some way further challenging the humanitarian sector. So one is um the fact that um in many ways COVID nineteen is forcing the humanitarian sector to really rethink how they conceptualise vulnerability and how to target assistance and services as a result. If you want to with COVID-19, everybody is vulnerable, so what do you do? Um, on the one hand, um, direct vulnerability to the virus tends to be quite unusual for humanitarian action because it's mostly older men, um, where there's been often a, a focus on women and children in humanitarian responses. On the other hand, um, we see the secondary effect um, of COVID-19, as as Teresa was highlighting in her presentation, follow this very well-known trend of marginalization that are often embedded in societal norms and patterns of social exclusion. And for refugees in particular, um, COVID-19 really highlights the fact that they are too often excluded from social protection protection mechanisms and health provisions. And then the second big aspect, as Manuel was highlighting in this presentation, is that COVID-19 is changing what is considered to be some of the basic needs, and in particular around access to internet, access to technology. And these have become basic needs in some ways as a result of lockdown restrictions um, and the lack of inclusion around um, digital um, Digitalization around technology, around internet, um means that um you know some of those most vulnerable are further ex- further marginalized from access to um the services and the information that they need. Um and this digital device is also something that we are looking at at the United Policy Group, um and this change um how you know this new pandemic is actually really um, showing us new uh, needs and 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 new areas of work for the humanitarian sector to ensure inclusion. Um, I'm going to stop here, but I'm happy to answer any further questions. Thanks so much, Veronique. A
1: lot of food for thought, and I think particularly resonating around the, the challenges of having a lot of technical guidance, but then doesn't necessarily resonate with actors. So a lot of work that's still done that's needed to translate Um, evidence into something that's accessible and and practical and actionable for for practitioners. Um, I mean, picking up on um, that point, we have an interesting question in um, also trying to um, ask uh, the researchers involved, what is it like conducting social research virtually in the context of the pandemic? And is there more that could be done to support researchers on the front line um, I think you know, it links in very nicely to the point that Veronique was making about leaving no one behind. So maybe, Sally, you could
2: reflect a bit on that first. Thanks. Um, yes, sure. Um, well, Nicola, uh, the intersection or uh, of the crises in Lebanon especially uh, has been hard actually on everyone. Um, so basically, we as individuals uh, we are facing our own uh, challenges and worries, um, uh, especially during the lockdown. Uh, it was really hard on us. Uh, we are also worried for our families who are also uh, losing their uh, income and facing the uh, facing uh, different uh, different challenges uh, within these conditions. Uh, At the same time, we had uh, to be there, to be present, uh, to listen to the uh, adolescents, to try and support them, and to encourage them to to share their experiences and to talk about them. This has been definitely, uh, this definitely had a toll on our uh, emotional and psychological well-being. Uh, however, Nicola, uh, I think Gage was uh, proactive in realizing the impact uh, of uh, these challenges on uh, on researchers. So for the audience to know, uh, since the beginning of the pandemic we have been receiving uh, uh, support sessions, uh, support individual sessions where we would uh, share our uh, challenges, worries and fears. And uh, the office team has worked with us on positive coping mechanisms during this period. In addition to this, uh, Nicola, who is our Director and our Middle East uh, Research Manager, uh, we're also conducting weekly debriefing sessions, which included the different teams in the Middle East region, where we could share our uh, our experiences as individuals, but also these stories we're hearing from our participants, their challenges and fears. Uh, And actually, this was very helpful for us throughout this period. Um, uh, and it supported us a lot, mainly, Annie, uh, just to remain uh, sane and to survive uh, these cha- these compounded challenges during this uh, these uh, uh, troubling times. Um, actually, Nicola, I think there is um, there is a great need uh, to establish. Uh, a community of practice in the field of research, which could be linked or or, uh, that should include also the uh, uh, humanitarian and uh, development sectors as well, uh, which would uh, provide support to those of us at the front lines, especially in the conflict-affected context uh, where the pressures are extremely high on us. Very interesting point.
1: Thank you, Sally. Um, it's definitely something I think we can all look into to taking forward. Um, and related to that, there's a question in picking up on Veronique's point about the digital divide and the digital becoming a basic need, which I, I think is an excellent point that sort of resonated across the presentations. So if the different speakers are able to uh, reflect, particularly on how the gendered digital divide um, is playing out and what your organizations are doing to try and tackle that or if you have seen you know, examples of, of innovative practice. So maybe starting with you Manuel.
4: Thank you. Well based on the findings of our assessment we didn't uh, see difference in terms of gender and the access to the different digital platforms. What we saw was that the most vulnerable groups, specifically those on ITSs, the internal tent settlements, were the ones with the biggest gap. And as I said before, what we also saw was that it's very common to see that in one household, between three, four, five children, they have to share one device. So uh, regardless that we could say, oh, they are having access to the platform, what is the quality of that? So what we have been doing is we have negotiated with some of the service providers, such as SANE and Orange, to uh, give to the household preferential rates for accessing internet, for example, we got a bundle of 10 gigabytes for just two JODs, and for those most vulnerable areas, such as ITSs, we are providing uh, or subsidizing those uh, two JDs to allow them to have access to internet. Also, we are working and advocating with different donors to try to get uh, support in terms of devices for our Makani beneficiaries. So overall, that is the what, what we saw. Over to you.
1: Fascinating. Thank you, Manuel. Uh, Veronique, anything to
0: add on the, the digital challenges? Um, I mean, yes, and at the moment, unfortunately, we're still at the beginning of our research work around this. But it's just something that um, you know, in the humanitarian sector, the the digitalization has been very much seen as potentially a way towards more inclusion because potentially it enables more participation and effective participation of those affected by crisis, Um but increasingly Especially around the gender digital divide, this is something that has come up quite strongly um, in humanitarian research, um, in the development sector as well, and worrying us in terms of whether that promise is actually um, one that that is, you know, well, just an assumption is actually uh, there in practice. Um, and there is a feeling that, unfortunately, like with other um, trends of, of marginalisation or exclusion access to um, digital technology is something that often um, is difficult for those that probably most need the information, most need the services, and most need to participate and inform Humanity Action.
1: Thank you, Veronique. Any final words from you, Teresa? Uh,
3: Thanks very much. I mean, I I haven't had a chance yet to look across the, the recently collected Kenya data or the forthcoming Uganda data that we're similarly doing with the World Bank and, and UBOS and uh, comparable socioeconomics uh, impact of COVID. But I think, you know, as, as already highlighted that, you know, uh, there is um, evidence of, of there being a gender digital divide uh, in general. Um, you know, what's, you know, not, it, it isn't surprising, right? If you look at outcomes in terms of uh, employment or education where we already know Um, certainly for secondary education that girls have lower enrollment rates. And so when, um, until, you know, inner household bargaining power is um, equalized, I think that we would expect to see um, that, you know, it could be likely, I would say that this trend could be, uh, you know, part of that wider, that wider trend, but uh, we would have to look at it. Thanks.
1: Right, so definitely a a space to keep watching. Um, So unfortunately, even though we have some unanswered questions, we are almost out of time. So just to wrap up, um, I think what's really stood out to me is three key points. One, I think all of our panel have really highlighted the, the multi dimensional vulnerabilities Um, that uh, young people and those who are hardest to reach are facing during these times. But because of resource shortages, it's absolutely critical that we're bringing to bear the evidence so we can tailor very um, constrained resources to more effectively reach and and support, um, particularly young people uh, in these contexts. Um, I think there's been a strong point made about the need for innovative, nimble um, virtual and face-to-face um, mixed methods um, research and really a, a um, disruption of the existing rather slow uh, research infrastructure. So um, a need to really be able to inform very quickly and in real time um, the the decisions that uh, policy actors and, and program actors are needing to make And then finally, um, a plea uh, for everyone in this space to really make sure that we're then thinking about, as Veronique highlighted, how do we really translate um, that evidence and that knowledge into um, a format and a a discourse and a dialogue that's accessible uh, and meaningful for, for those who can make the change on the ground. So with that, I would like to thank all of our panelists very much indeed. I think we could have had a full day session. There's there's so much richness behind uh, the reflections that you were able to share. Uh, A big thank you to um, those of you online as well for your thoughtful questions. We will uh, be putting the recording of the discussion online and also sharing some uh, of the key resources. So you'll get an email out about that as well. So thank you all very much